I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. Most of us agree that a signature dish isn't just the one that gets the most likes on Instagram. I mean, that's what we consider a signature dish now. It's really visually driven, but really Mm -hmm. a signature dish for us is something that changed gastronomy. It moved the needle. It influenced a variety of chefs. When I was looking at dishes, I wanted to draw lines and connect dots to chefs both of that era and things that are still trickling down today. That is Christine Mulkey, co-curator and writer of the new book, Signature dishes that matter. It's interesting, you know, when I, when I think of what defines a signature dish, I, I also just, by nature of what I do, I, I immediately think of the chef. And, and I, first thing I think of is, is, is it the chef who can decide whether a dish is a signature or not? Um, but also how that's changed over time. And that is esteemed pastry chef, Michael Lasconis, our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and I am coming to you this week. And as you may hear, I'm trying to keep my voice slightly down, not a whisper, but not at my usual full-throated gusto. I am in the bedroom of my nephew. I'm in Miami, Florida, my hometown. I'm paying a visit to my family down here, and I am borrowing, crashing in, squatting in my nephew's bedroom. I am sitting atop a race car-themed bed, which is where they've been kind enough to let me sleep this weekend. And I am recording my intro here from, uh, from my hometown. It's quite a flashback moment for me being in a, in a toddler's room in the, in the city where I was a toddler. In any event, that's, that's where I'm coming to you from. This week's show is called Signature Dishes That Matter. It's a bit of a diversion from our usual topic because it's not a biographical interview with a chef. In fact, our, one of our two primary guests is not a chef but actually a fellow writer. Her name is Christine Mulkey. She's somebody whose work I admire quite a bit. And Christine is out along with a number of co-curators, although I should point out that Christine did the actual writing of the book, a new book called Signature Dishes That Matter. It's a beautiful book from Fiden, who generally do very beautiful books. And the book is an examination of signature dishes from over the past several centuries, not exclusively signature dishes from chefs, although as we get to more modern times in the chronology of the book, most of the examples they give are from chefs. But it's an examination of, of, of dishes, and as much as they were able to determine them historically, the creators of those dishes, as the title would suggest, why these particular signature dishes matter, how they helped move the ball forward, how they advanced the culinary narrative throughout history, leading to this moment that we're all very fortunate to to live and dine in today. Well, I don't know how fortunate we are to live in this moment today, but we're fortunate to dine in this moment today. That much is for sure. And I should say, Christine's co-curators on this project were Susan Young, Howie Kahn, Pat Norse, Andrea Petrini, Diego Salazar, and Richard Vines. The book also has a very intelligent foreword by Mitchell Davis of the James Beard Foundation. It's a fun book. It is It is. A hardcover book. It is beautifully illustrated with interpretations of the dishes that are described in the book. We talk about the illustrator and, and how that all came to be in the interview. Christine and I are joined by Michael Lesconis. Now, Michael is a very well-known pastry chef. I imagine many of our listeners know that name. Michael, for years, was at Le Bernardin in New York City. He currently has a very fun project called Recolte. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It is spelled R-E-C-O-L-T-E, and it is a dessert bar on the Upper West Side of New York City. It serves only dessert in the evenings, and I can't recommend it enough to all of you. The, The food he does there is wonderful. And the three of us sat down and just basically for close to an hour kicked around the notion of what signature dishes are, how the definition has changed over time. We go through a number of the signature dishes in the book and what their meaning is. We go through dishes that maybe didn't make the cut and 
you know, just kind of geek out on food history. I think it's it's an episode you all are going to enjoy quite a bit. I do need to also say and to thank my friend Jonathan Benno, whose restaurant Benno in New York City was the location for this interview. He was kind enough to let us borrow the private dining room there during the day. You will notice when he pops into the room at one point, I allude to just having dinner there. And I cannot recommend that restaurant highly enough. It's fantastic, as is the casual restaurant, Leonella Taberna, which is Jonathan's other restaurant under the same roof on 27th Street in New York City in the Evelyn Hotel. So I think that's all I really need to say about this. Again, this is myself, Christine Mulkey, one of the co-curators and the writer of Signature Dishes That Matter, and pastry chef Michael Lasconis kicking around the fun subject of signature dishes over the ages. Here you go. Christine, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, it's, I mean, what are the adjectives? It's an interesting book. It's a fun <laughs> book. It's a beautiful book. Interesting is kind of a loaded adjective, but I'll take okay. it. it. You want me to change it? I'll change it. <laughs> Fascinating. And It's an educational book. Very. But not dry. No. Yes. And it's, it's broken up into easily, no pun intended, digestible bits. Nuggets. Nuggets. Yes. Can we first of all just define, there is this important second half of the title, which is it's signature dishes that matter, um, but just signature dishes to begin with. You know, I think most of us today would automatically say, oh, well, we're talking about something that a chef did. You know, that's what most people now would assume that means. Like it's their calling card. Not necessarily, though, in the context of this book. How, how would you define signature dishes? Well, it's interesting. I, I was rereading the introductions that all of the other, we'll call them judges, for lack of a better term, the other people who had nominated dishes. It was a group process. You know, they talked about why they nominated things. And, and most of us agreed that a signature dish isn't just the one that gets the most likes on Instagram. I mean, that's what we consider a signature dish now. It's really visually driven. But really, mm-hmm. a signature dish for us is something that, change gastronomy. It moved the needle. It influenced a variety of chefs. I mean, I know personally when I was nominating dishes, it wasn't just, oh, this was cute. This is fun. I remember Spago. You know, I don't actually, but um, you know, that that pizza with caviar and and smoked salmon, I mean, that influenced a whole generation. So when I was looking at dishes, I wanted to draw lines and connect dots to uh, chefs both of that era and and things that are still trickling down today. Cool. Michael, what for you? You know, uh, for me, you know, it's interesting, you know, when I, when I think of what defines a signature dish, um, I, I also just, by nature of what I do, I, I immediately think of the chef. And, and I, first thing I think of is, is, is it the chef who can decide mm-hmm. whether a dish is a signature or not? Um, but also how that's changed over time. Um, but certainly, and I, and I love the way the book is, is presented chronologically, because mm-hmm. you do see not only evolution, but you also see where things fit in. Yeah. Like some of those things that maybe aren't technically chef-driven. Like I, I've never given thought to who originated buffalo wings. Yeah. But it's cool to see where it kind of fits into the big picture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny what you say, you know, can a, ch- a chef pick a signature dish? Because I was, well, I actually ended up being in the film business for five years. I took a bunch of film study classes when I was in school. And at one point we had to, def- someone said, let's everyone define masterpiece. Like, what does it mean when we talk about a masterpiece, someone's masterpiece? And I decided it was the, and this also came up in literature classes, and I decided for me, and I still believe in this definition, I think it's the same with signature dishes. For me, it's the, it's the thing, it's, it's the, the work that they did or works that most connected with the public. In my mind, right? So, like, you think about somebody like Alfred Hitchcock, his favorite movie of his own stuff was one that most people have never heard of. It's called Shadow of a Doubt. Hmm. That was his favorite movie of his own movies. Most people would say Vertigo, Psycho. Right. So he, for him, it was neither of those movies, you know? But those are the ones that resonate. Those are the ones that people still talk about. Those are the ones that, during the Hitchcock Fest... You know, on AMC, those are the ones that are front and center. Does that resonate with you too? I think so. I mean, sometimes a signature dish does become a bit of a free bird. You know, do you think Joel Robuchon really wished that every obituary would mention the, you know, the pump puree, the mashed potatoes? Like, I don't think that that's necessarily something that he considered his highest achievement. You would consider maybe, you know, the pointillist cauliflower dish with a million dots around the edge of the plate. I mean, sometimes they, they can't get away from that stairway to heaven. 
right. association, but um, I think it's something that's most associated with their name and with their legacy. So the book tracks not just chefs, but also you know dishes from throughout history. I think as we get more toward the, the age we're in now, it becomes much more chef dominant. Well, it was actually, I think Mitchell Davis wrote in his foreword that really the chef didn't, the name wasn't associated with it until Paul Bocuse, you know, until they were able to hang their name on the door with Nouvelle Cuisine. Before that, I mean, right. we don't know who really invented gelato or Mapo tofu or things like that, whereas today it would be, you know, David Chang's Mapo tofu. Right, right. Although there are some things in here that I think most people would not necessarily think somebody invented that or it's right. traceable. So for me, totally. one of them was, because I was, I remember learning it when I went to cooking school and I thought it was so cool, palm souffle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a, can you, there's a story behind palm souffle. There's a story behind palm souffle and that's part of, the, there were these sort of subsets in here. They were um, dishes that were created because it was late or the kitchen was closing, or people came in at the last minute, or they would run out of something. Or a special it was so request busy. for a special VIP, request. I mean, you know, would, yeah. basically bossy regulars or rando patrons definitely uh, led to certain things, such as Caesar salad, yep. um, nachos, carpaccio, carpaccio. Um, and I do to make a further aside. I also love the idea that sort of maitre d's were really dominant in the early 1900s and it wasn't the chef, you know. Right, so, it was the impresario. Yeah, yeah, the green goddess or, you know, some of the people in New York City. I really love that. Like, well, who was it? Someone of the Waldorf, you know, and he had his own cookbook, but he, he never cooked right. anything. But in the case of, of Pomme Souffle, it was a chef. Um, they had just inaugurated a train line between Paris and the countryside and some very, you know, Fancy people were going out, and they were late. So the chef had started the process of these potatoes, and he had fried them a little bit, but he wanted to put them to the side so that because this uh, this train had been delayed, wanted to make sure that they were ready when they got there. So he fried them a second time, and it turns out that the temperature change made them puff up in that exquisite way. Yeah, and that is one of those dishes that it almost feels was just handed down like from heaven or what. Yeah, you know. it's a happy. Well, but if you you've ever have... made them, you would curse yeah. him. But yes, uh, well, I actually enjoyed them. No, yeah, but I mean, you got to no, get it just right. Well, yeah. there are a lot thrown. There are a lot of babies thrown out with the bathwater yes, to I use an unpleasant yes. well, I've image. It in cooking school, yes, there yes. was a lot of waste on that potato day. But yeah. um, but I would never have thought, even having written a little bit of history myself, like mm-hmm. that that was something that you could trace to the actual person who did it. Sure. You know, it's really cool. No, it was so fun. The stories associated with these things were really one of the gifts and also the sort of sneaky people that maybe you didn't know about or think about, hadn't heard of or thought about and ways that they had influenced food um, mm-hmm. really, really struck me. Do you have a favorite in that realm? Is there one that's kind of especially, what, for whatever reason, just that you think is cool? I mean, I'll probably have to look through here, but like I'd never heard of... Um, Alexis Sawyer, mm-hmm. uh, Soyer, and in, in, in England, and and he had such a big effect. But he also did so many other things. I mean, he was on the Crimean front with Florence Nightingale. He invented the portable stove. He set up some of the first, uh, you know, soup kitchens, things that Massimo Bottura, you know, would kill to do today. Yeah. Um. I and he did reform cutlets. Um. Yeah. At the Reform Club. I mean, there there are some people that I'd really never heard of, and there are also particularly. English and Irish chefs that I had never thought about. I mean, I liken it to sort of when you, you're you on a plane or something and you've got a copy of, I don't know, like the Paris Review or something, and there are those things that you would maybe normally skip, or those right. interviews, and those yeah. are the ones that end up changing your life. Yes. So. Well, um, it's, I mean, you talk about England. I mean, for longer than the U.S. was kind of a punchline for culinar- culinarily, right. England had that reputation, whether it was fair or not. But at the same time, fine dining in, in London sure. until... What, what would you say, the 90s, was really French. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm obsessed with the souffle suissesse that uh-huh. was served um, at Le Gavroche, still served, I mean, thousands and thousands of them. Um, and I actually am working with a client um, for my consultancy, and I asked the chef to make a souffle suissesse because there were some dishes in here that I just became obsessed with. Yeah, right. Like, I would just have to go get them. And he made this dish because he had actually worked at Le Gavroche, and it was, we were all crying, and everyone said, how could this dish have gone out of fashion? How did right. we not know about this dish? But what a treat, right, for you to be able... Oh. I mean, it's kind of like, it's almost like being able to meet somebody who's, like, passed away, you know, like... Oh, totally. Who's passed away, you know? Like, that's an amazing privilege that you were accorded. Yeah. And I'm also, I was really obsessed with the omelet Arnold Bennett, Mm -hmm. which somehow, so I have trouble saying sort of like, I can't say Arnold Palmer. So the omelet 
Arnold Bennett was named after the author. Um, he'd written a bunch of books set, and some of them were set at a hotel. And so he was at the staying at this hotel to write this book, and they created this dish for him. And it's so kind of disgusting and over the top in that kind of like Montreal way that I emailed uh, Riyadh at Frenchette. And mm -hmm. I said, if you ever do a brunch menu, can you please make this? So it's basically sort of an omelet, a very loose, puffy omelet onto which is put, I think, smoked herring. And uh -huh. then the sauce is a combination of hollandaise and bernays, and it's glooped over the top, and then it's run under the salamander. There might be an additional layering of cheese, but I mean, come on, that sounds delicious. That also sounds like maybe the original stoner dish. Exactly. I, I've, I realized one day all stoner food is based on not being able to decide between more than one thing, so they end <laughs> up on the I'm not. I'm not kidding. That's my personal theory of stoner food, but I digress. That's perfect. Michael, as a chef, Two questions for you. One is when you, you know, when you were coming up, and I know that you read your history, you're still fascinated by it. Are there particular, whether or not they're in the book, just as a, you know, exploring this topic, are there signature dishes that were out there that particularly resonated with you that helped you sort of chart a course for yourself? For for sure. I mean, my my favorite kind of chunk of the book is that period between the '60s and the '80s, you know, mm -hmm. that Nouvelle Cuisine period. Um, because it draws such a straight line towards, you know, what we were doing 10, 15 years ago, even, mm -hmm. even today. Um, and, and I also love seeing those dishes celebrated because they existed before the digital age. And, and I worry that some of those dishes will be forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's my, my, my favorite personal period. Um, you know, but, but I also, in, in going through the book, I, I see things that, that pop out at me. Claudia Fleming's mm. chocolate tart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, what pastry chef post-1995 didn't do a riff on that. Mm -hmm. um, and can we give a shout-out? Her book, I The Last know. Course, is about to be re-released so beautifully. So excited. Yes. Finally. I hope it doesn't drive down the Amazon value of my two original copies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought about selling mine, but no, I, know. I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't part with it. Um, also, Alain Passard's egg. I okay. mean, I guess right. arguably, right. If, if, again, can I decide, um, if I've had a signature dish, yeah. it was the, the egg that we served at, at La Bernadette. I think they still do some occasionally. Um, you know, that was a direct inspiration mm -hmm. from, from his egg. Um, you know, but we even were talking about sort of um, maybe things that have gone under the radar, things that we wouldn't think of if we're just narrowly looking through a... Francophile or even Western perspective, you know. Um, I, I don't think it's in the book, but Mark Minot's Kromisky. Mm. But then there's the soup dumpling, mm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, which 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 likely predated that. Who knows how, how long? Um, so all those things are kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's sort of the genealogy mm -hmm. aspect of it. Now, what about? Well, first of all, I have to ask. It's interesting to me to hear you name Claudia Fleming because if I think about the style of desserts you were known for, you're at a restaurant that had three Michelin stars. We can, I mean, you can pick the adjective. You know, very technique, very technical, uh, a lot of bells and whistles, uh, fancy. Just so I'm clear, I'm not challenging it, but it's interesting to me. What is it that's not apparent mm. to me that you connect with about what she sure. does? I mean, t to me, I mean, part of what defines a signature dish is that it stands some test of time. That's one one criteria. Yep. Um, perhaps another is it, it maybe marks a defining moment or starts a pattern. Um, if you think about what was happening in the mid-90s, um, when a restaurant like Gramercy opened and, and Claudia started um, putting stuff out there, we were kind of in the middle of this weird architectural style of desserts. It was like counter-programming. It was <laughs> yeah. super yeah. clean, super geometrical, um, not very seasonally driven. Yes. And, and that kind of marked sort of a departure, yeah. a departing point. And, and just the, the sheer number of pastry chefs who are inspired just by that, that break, mm -hmm. I, I think it's important. Um, and, and I would certainly include myself. In that. Reality check. Sure. Yeah, it was a counterbalance. Sure. Yeah. And also, the, I mean, there's something distinctly American about her desserts that wasn't, maybe there was a, a slight nod to France, but it, it yeah. was really not French. Michael, I also am curious, we had this thing, like do chefs get to pick their own dishes? Do you have dishes of your own that you consider signature dishes? Um, or wish were considered signature he's dishes? He's too humble to say this. You know, like, like I said, if, if there's one dish that I'm associated with, it would be 
our eggshell that was filled mm -hmm. with chocolate and caramel mm -hmm. and maple and sea salt. Um, yeah, no, I, it, it's, it, it's hard to step away from the things you've created. And, mm -hmm. and for me too, I mean, this is just a personal thing. Um, a dish has never really finished. Mm -hmm. It's always evolving. And I'll, I'll let something sit for four or five years and I'll come back to it. You know, and that's the cool thing I get to do now that, again, that I'm working in this medium, at least under my own banner, um, with this dessert bar we're running. Um, you know, I'm, I'm taking stuff that I haven't touched in maybe 10 years, wow. revisiting it. Maybe it's the same flavor combination and just reworking it in a new way. And is there anything you've been playing with on your new dessert menu that you think could reference that actually might be inspired by something that's not, not necessarily in this book, but something from the past? You know, it, it's interesting because I, I think in, in one example that's in the book, um, I mean, we got to talk about the cronut, right? Yeah. Um, For multiple reasons. You know, one of which is that little symbol that comes I know, after it's its the name. only yeah. trademark dish so, in the book. So, you know, I love Dominique, but he probably was not the first guy to ever put croissanto in a deep fryer. Um, and that dish was probably not intended to be the international pop culture icon that it became. Um, it was something to promote his, at that point, I think a six-month-old bakery. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and all kinds of things went into that. The, the scarcity, the exclusivity had to line up at six in the morning. I've never had one. I had one. I had it once. <laughs> I prefer his Queen Amon. You what? His Queen Amon. Oh, you prefer calls that. the DKs. Okay. To me, that would be the signature. And, and, and mm, arguably, sure. he also put that on the map. Because yes. you see yeah. Queen Amon everywhere now, but sure. 10 years ago, no, it was this obscure pastry from yeah. Brittany. Um, you know, so, so with the, the Cronut, I mean, it was, a lot of it was the branding. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are a lot, a lot of great historical examples of, you know, a financier, mm -hmm. an almond and brown butter cake. That existed as a, as a cake, as a pastry. Yeah. But it was some guy who needed to, you know, drum up some, some marketing, and he named it after the stockbrokers at the Paris Stock Exchange right. around the corner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this the is hurry breast. I know there are so mm -hmm, many. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want to kind of predate that. I want right. to get to this in a little bit, but it, you know, the Corona came at the perfect moment in time, right? It was like the blogs were established, and social media was starting to really reach its apex. And here's this thing with a great name, that's fun, that's easily explained, mm -hmm. you know. And there's this scarcity. You know, you could brag, "I got one," you know, or right. "Here I am in line." Like these are all things that fit into the Instagram life. Right? I sure. mean, it, it, was, it was a perfect thing for the moment. These things do exist in context. They do, but I, I do wonder about some dishes that almost seem created for that. And, and I don't think that these chefs get to choose what actually takes off. I mean, one of the examples, more recent examples in here, is there's a sort of a strawberry rose cake that was created by a pastry chef in Australia for mm -hmm. his bakery. And it became, or watermelon, sorry. It was like a watermelon cake. Mm -hmm. And it became so popular that now people come, I think they almost have direct bus lines to the or to the airport from this bakery. So you can go with your luggage because also um, Asian customers bring it back um, and they just want to go straight to the airport. You know, and he's actually been able to open multiple locations after this. And I don't think that could have happened sooner. And I, But I don't think that he necessarily created that crazy cake to do that. The forces are larger than If you, if you than try the, too hard, it's Yeah, the forces work. are... Yeah, I remember years ago having a talk with Jonathan Waxman about his roast chicken. Uh, and we, he, said, we, he said to me, it's like trying to... You can't create it. It's like trying to intentionally... You know, there was a sequel years ago to the Rocky Horror Picture Show called oh Shock my Treatment. God. Which tanked, right? Because you can't intentionally make a cult film. Right. Right? And it's like the same thing. with You can't intentionally create a signature dish. Right. And, and at that level... You know, does the signature dish almost become a curse because you're you're constantly expected to top that? Yes. Or to serve it forever. Yes. Or to serve it. Forever. Yeah. Take up. <clears throat> if you don't have a giant menu, it's you know, and if you have more than one, at some point, that's why there are these chefs like Paul Bocuse. I'm sure it's still served at his restaurant. You know, there's like the great. Well, no, there's like a greatest hits menu. Yeah, the valor, the soup, the soup, with and the VSG. and the rouget with the uh, potato scales, which mm -hmm. is all. Those are both in the book. Mm -hmm. um, there was a whole greatest hits menu at that restaurant for right. years, in addition to the regular dinner menu. Right. Yeah. Okay, Christine, I want to ask a couple of procedural things. So, um, I'll I'll have explained a lot of this in the intro, but just so people get a sense, uh, there are little introductory essays. Uh, or statements by each of the curators. There's mm -hmm. a half dozen of you. 
There's also, can I just say, you and I don't know each other well. You didn't ask me to say this. So Not everyone's yet. on the cover as a curator. And then on the title page, there's a small note that says, Narrative Text by Christine Mulkey. <laughs> so you actually did the writing. I did the writing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> just, just for the record. Yes, thank you. That's I, a lot of work. I, I wrote, as, a I wrote fellow, as a fellow scribe, I have to say Thank that. you. So there were six of you. There are... 237 dishes in this book. They span 1686 to 2018, time-wise. I'm sorry if I missed it. I don't think it's in the book. What was the process? Because it says, like, selected by. Okay. But how did you all, was it like the Hall of Fame where there were multiple ballots? And how did, how did, this, how did you make your selections? There was a spreadsheet. So initially they sent out an email to all of the people mm-hmm. who they selected from around the world. And um, we nominated 50 dishes. And Each. then it, yes. Okay. And then it went into the combinator and, you know, pooped out into an Excel spreadsheet. And mm-hmm. then they were able to say, you know, well, 10 people nominated this dish. Or right. in some instances, especially with Fran Adria um, or even Michelle Bra, you know, well, gosh, we, people have nominated five of their dishes. Sure. So let's narrow it down to two. Or wait a minute. But then, so that was the first layer of it. And then picking it apart further, what was the geographic representation? Um, what was the demographic representation? You know, street food is so important, but mm-hmm. trickier from an origin, you know, also, I mean, fact-checking nightmare, just all of it, really. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then were there enough women represented, which obviously the answer is no, because the answer is... Yeah, that, that ratio is still... It's actually, I don't know if you've seen your no. own press release, but... The number is still staggering. No, there, is honestly, a, there is such a discrepancy. Personally, I mean, yeah. even in my own process, I mean, I went through and I was like, okay, I, ha- I, ne- I want to have Edna Lewis. I want to have Gabrielle Hamilton. You know, I really want to make sure that of my 50, I have at least, you know, f- I'm going to try for 15 to 20 mm-hmm. of women and also make sure that, you know, the cultural appropriation is very real and a very big problem. I mean, even writing about Prince's hot chicken and I think about the chains that have picked up on it, you know, they're yeah. like Georgetown bros right. who are now running these hot chicken places. Yeah. Um, this is all, by the way, this topic is acknowledged in uh, Mitchell Davis yes, of the James Mitchell Beard did a Foundation nice job wrote with an intro and he, he does touch on this fact. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, personally with my own list, those were things that I went through and then Fiden also went through everyone's list. You know, I think we originally had 300 dishes and then we sort of wintered it down. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's nothing from Africa. There are very few things from India. I mean, obviously, people are going to notice what's not in there in some ways mm-hmm. more than they notice what is in there. But um, so first it was selection, and then it was an attempt at balance. Mm-hmm. So it was a deliberate attempt. Correct. And, I mean, things were being added at the last minute, or sometimes I would write something, which is, you know. At not- the last minute, like somebody would go, oh, my God. How do we not have anything from so-and-so? Yes. Whether like, that's a person or a city. Right. Or, you know, we don't have anything from <laughs> Colombia. Or, right. well, you know, we decided, like, one of the judges decided that maybe this, you know, um, dish from Lido 84 is more important than this other dish. And, of course, I just finished writing that one and researching right. it. But, um, no, there was definitely a living, it was a living spreadsheet. By the way, I rarely quote... Um, Press releases, but there's a line when I asked you what you know. How would you define signature dishes? This line is not in the book, but it is on. The, I think this is a good kind of pocket description for what you all did: a global celebration of the iconic restaurant dishes that define the course of culinary history over the past 300 years. Yes, that's about right. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's how I viewed it personally. It's not specific to any type of creator, i.e., chef or non-chef. It's not. It's, no. it's, 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 it wasn't I think a popularity. It's appropriately general. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. a popularity contest. I really wanted to have something from Freddie Giraudet in there. And honestly, like, there, it was very hard. And I also, what I also did was I, I surveyed chefs that I respect. You know, I went to Eric, I called Eric Repair. I called David Kinch, you know, I called these people who are, who really do buy all the old cookbooks and, and really research them, um, to ask what influenced them as chefs, because mm-hmm. that's also really important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not right. a popularity contest. So I also love this. This I think is just so honest and, and, uh, and I also think it's inevitable for a book like this, right? This book is not going to achieve perfection, right? It's very subjective. Do we ever, Andrew? <laughs> This is from Howie Kahn's curator statement at the front of the book. 
Compilations like this one, of course, strive to be definitive, but they're most useful if understood and embraced as imperfect. The best compilations spark debate. They leave room to consider their readers' experiences. The best resource in the end becomes a package. The book to start, and then the intentional action of a deeper, more thorough, and more empathetic conversation. Evaluating which dishes matter can help us move toward that moment. Mm. Which I kind of love. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. We have a visitor. Oh, look. It's Jonathan Benno. Hi, Jonathan Benno. Hey, nice Jonathan. Good to see you. How are you? Doing well. Good. Dinner was awesome Saturday. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for letting us crash. Yes, thank you for letting Thanks. us squat here. <laughs> it's been it's almost true. a year. Congratulations. Thanks. He just did the Times Food Festival last weekend, which I helped put together. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, and okay. my son was obsessed with his focaccia. But this notion of the it's 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 inevitably imperfect that it is met. You know, it's like when people do their best of lists or right. or even you know in any category. You know, right. I'm a tennis fan. There's a debate right now about who the best player of all time is. You know, three of them are still playing and racking up. You know, you can't. You know, who knows? Mm-hmm. But that is fun. Sure. Yeah. And also, I mean, there are some, she- like, there were chefs who were really influential but may not have had signature dishes, such as Freddie Giraudet. And there's a really wonderful mention uh, in, in Mitchell Davis's foreword where he said he has a menu that he kept from a meal there in 1992. And on the back of the menu, it said, these are past dishes that were served at my restaurant, but we're not serving them today. But, you know, so he got to have this snapshot, but would never be able to examine them because he believed in just constantly, I think someone like Freddie was moving so quickly. Yeah or not quickly, but just so continuously with the seasons that he refused to have a signature dish stuck on his menu. Yeah. I mean, there are people who function like that. I mean, our mutual friend, Paul Liebrandt, sure. just, you know, it's kind of like the way Jerry Seinfeld retired his act every year. There would, Paul would just like into the dustbin. Wow. You know, periodically. It, never to be, I mean, maybe periodically for an event or something. Right. But I've known other chefs who are like that. Um, he's no longer there, but Justin Hilbert, who was the chef at Maud. Uh, Curtis Stone's restaurant in LA, mm-hmm. who was a guest on this show, same thing. When it's done, it's he just doesn't. He just wants to move on. Cool. Yeah, and I think I think there's a dish from Pierre Gagnier in the book. I mean, he's definitely one. Like, if name a signature dish from Gagnier, I'd be hard pressed to because he's so much about that evolution and just constant tweaking and and moving forward. Like Jeremiah Tower's not in the book, but they right. change the menu with stars on a daily basis. Right. I, I just did a lot of writing about Jeremiah Tower. I don't know what I would say was his signature dish. Oh, wow. Like, I really don't. Right. I, I don't think it diminishes him. I just think he wasn't that kind of chef. I think you just gave us Fiden the idea for the next book, which is signature chefs, because those are oh. different things. But I'm also looking forward to, um, we're actually doing a little dinner series with Open Table. So I'll be in Chicago in a few weeks oh. for a public dinner, and then... Um, uh, going to New Orleans with Compare Le Pen, and then Howie's going to be at Zuni Cafe. Oh, great. I'm really excited to hear what, quote-unquote, civilians, you know, non-food geeks, like, I, I'm excited for the debate. I'm excited to be educated further because that's the reason I took this job in the first place is to learn because yeah. and to be completely humbled behind this, before this ocean of information yes. that, you know, you really only know half a wave of... My theme song and break music is from After School Specials album Double Barrel Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Welcome back to the show. I'll get you back to the rest of our conversation with Christine Mulkey and Michael Lasconis in just a moment. I do want to first mention, Christine mentioned in the interview a series of dinners they were doing in conjunction with Open Table. This episode was recorded back on Columbus Day. Most of those dinners have already, sadly, taken place. I hope they were fun. But if you are listening to this episode on the day that it drops, Wednesday the 13th of November, 2019... This evening is the dinner at Zuni Cafe with Howie Kahn that Christine mentions in the interview. Uh, If you hear this interview early enough in the day and it sounds interesting, maybe they still have seats. Visit Open Table and see if you can get yourself into that. I also want to remind everybody that we do now have an official Andrew Talks to Chefs website. It is andrewtalkstochefs.com. 
does not get much more simple than that. You can look at old episodes there. You can send us an email from there. You can leave us a voicemail from there. Maybe we will play that on the air. And you can subscribe to our email mailing list. So I do hope that you will visit that website, bookmark it, and make yourself a frequent guest there. Okay, with all that, I'm now going to return you to our conversation with Christine Mulkey and Michael Lascanis as we continue to go through the book, Signature Dishes That Matter. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. Michael, I'll bring you in a little more in just a second. I just want to ask Christine one more uh, kind of bottom line question here to, uh, before we move on to some of the dishes in the book. Uh, the illustrator. The mm-hmm. illustrations are a major part of this book. Now, it is explained in the book. I think if you think about it for a minute, it, you don't even need that because it's obvious. There's dishes in this book that predate photography. Um, most of the stuff in this book predates, obviously, social media. Um, dishes weren't shot as a matter of course the way they are now, even by the restaurants for cataloging purposes. You know, a lot of chefs... Cat, do you catalog, Michael? Oh, you need to yeah. see his books. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, chefs... That's a, a lot of chefs now, though, are, are meticulous catalogers of their own work. They keep a recipe on file. They keep a photograph on file. Yeah, that's a thing, but that wasn't always a thing, right? So from a practical standpoint, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because there's a visual representation of all the, of the images. I was interested to see that Adriano Rampazzo, the mm-hmm. illustrator, is a former chef. Yeah, I, that's fascinating. How do you, were you part of the, how, you know how this person was selected? and Because it just seems perfect. Not at all. It's okay. so perfect. And I'm, I'm just endlessly charmed and surprised and in some way awed by these dishes because they're difficult. I mean, yeah. beyond extant image, imagery, you know, to pull from, how do you make, you know, creme brulee, how do you make an omelet look good? Yeah. And also represent the dish because you do want to see those details. I think he did a great job. Well, there's also a stylistic consistency going back from the 1600s to like 2018. I think they were, um, you know, they were just loosely defined enough visually that you get a sense of it, but you, yeah. it's not trying to be you know, a photograph in watercolor, no. right? It's, 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 uh, and they also, to me, do look like things I've seen in chef's notebooks. Like I'm reminded mm. of one of Wolfgang Puck's that was my first thought, yeah. cookbooks where he actually had his sketches of his own dishes, you know, and this kind of looks like that colored in. Do you know the mm. book I mean? Yeah. Yeah. This kind of looks like that, but colored in, in a way. For it sure. looks like it was done by a chef. You mentioned connecting dots before, something like that. Mm-hmm. There are actually some dots connected within the book or dishes that recur in different form, right? Mm-hmm. So I would point to, for example, although I, the, the original hamburger is not in here, uh-huh. but there is the DB burger, which was this extravagant thing that Daniel Balud had on the menu at uh, DB Bistro Modern in New York City. Mm-hmm. There is the Big Mac. Mm-hmm. And there are two relatively recent vegetable-based burgers. There's the Superiority Burger. Yay. And there's the Veggie Pulp Burger from Dan Barber, a chef of Blue Hill, who has been doing the Wasted programs and things like that. That's kind of right in his you know, wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other one that jumps out at me is, is there's three different versions of Carpaccio, mm-hmm. right? There's the original Carpaccio from Harry's in Venice. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Pig Trotter's Carpaccio. Right. From Spain. And there's the tuna carpaccio from La Bernardin. Mm-hmm. Was that exciting to you all to come up, to have a few sort of threads like that? Oh, sure. And did you have to limit yourself from not having too many things like oh, that? Oh, definitely. There were things that fell out because of that. I mean, it's also I, the dishes that I think are the most, that, that came up a lot because I was also cross-referencing them and making sure that the pages were, the page references were correct when that came back in the galley form. Um, Michelle Bra, the gargouillou and the what we'll call the molten chocolate cake, I think are two of the most recurring or influential dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, would he be an influential chef or is he more in influential dishes? But um, I think oh, that's those, interesting. Are, those are two that um, are just incredible. And, and, you know, how many people in America say know who Michelle Bra is, but they know what they don't necessarily know what a gargouille is, but they know what a molten chocolate cake is because they have one at TGI Fridays. Um, there's TGI Fridays. There's the, the version of it Jean-Georges made famous in the States. <laughs> yes. What, can I not say that? No, no, it's just a funny jump. <laughs> I think there's one at P.F. Chang. I mean, you can tell yeah. us. Well, I, you know, I, I think about that too, you know, the, you know, reconciling the, the origin story of something like the Caesar salad, which was something that had to be made on the fly, right? 
and but but it, it was it was this refined table side thing, and then we all asso- maybe not all of us, but most of us associate a Caesar salad with mediocrity in so many, <laughs> in so many ways, right? Mm-hmm. right? You know, so so sometimes when these things, you know, become so embedded in the culture. You know, is is something lost? Mm-hmm. Well, we should say oh, by mediocrity, you mean question. it's become there's become this sort of um, bastardized popular version. The one like it's not a traditional part of a Caesar salad to have the two little anchovies crossed at the on top, like a. Or it's right. just yeah. not always good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not always. Because That's it's so generous. it's so ubiquitous. Yeah. Right. Right. Or well, even, you can yeah. Yeah, or think about that. There are bottled salad dressings. Same with Green Goddess. Like. Do people really know that there are anchovies in Green Goddess or things mm-hmm. like that? Or even the original uh, fettuccine Alfredo, you know, is in here. And that wasn't a gloopy dish. That was yeah. something that he created for his wife because she was, you know, ill during pregnancy and it's all that she would eat. Mm. Um, but, Michael, I would love to know dishes, especially desserts, that you would like to have seen in here. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, would like to have seen? You mean that yes, aren't in here? Correct. Oh, wow. You know, okay. I mean, is I, I mentioned Claudia's chocolate tart. The one dish that I associate with her, like if I had to call out a signature, it would be her coconut tapioca dish. Oh, oh that's interesting. Um, that's just, I actually did a riff on that. That was something I was actually thinking of doing for a while at Dessert Bar, sort of like maybe once a week doing like cover versions. <laughs> oh, that's cool. You know, as an homage. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I still I still think about this, that dish all the time. Um you know, the, I think the, 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 whatever we want to call it, the warm chocolate cake origin story, you know, for a lot of people is blurred. You know, I, I think if you look at the chronology, I think it's Michel Bra, but, mm-hmm. but Jean Georges was a different, a different approach. And right. as far as we know, an accident. Well, you know, I mean, them out of the oven too early. Exactly. Cause he was catering and yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, also the origin stories were kind of a nightmare in this book. You mean trying to find... Um, well, just there's sometimes there were, it was a 20-car pileup of conflicting stories sure. where, you know, one, even a brother would claim that he created X dish and then right. the other one said, no, you didn't because you weren't even in the country, but you yeah. know, that was in the 1920s. So how right. Um, what else dessert-wise? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> what's not in the book? Um, I mean, I, I mentioned, you know, again, these are just things that from my nerdy pastry background, you know, I immediately think of the financier, the Paris Brest, mm. um, which, you know, the, the Queen Amman, which is <clears throat> kind of came out of obscurity and, and now is, is pretty common. Um, I don't know. You know, one, one thing I also think of um, is, you know, in, in terms of standing the test of time, and I, and I see that we go right up to 2018, can you have a signature dish that's only a year old? Well, this was actually, this was going to be my last yeah. question, but this is great. I want to talk you know, about how, this. How, how, how do we judge that? Can I restate that slightly? Yeah. Sure. Was there a period, in, I, th- I have a guess as to what it had to be, but um, was there a period in the book that was most easy or let the least difficult in which to make your selections? You know, where the selections were more obvious. Like, sure. You know, was there a period of a certain couple of decades where you felt like? I mean, I would say Nouvelle Cuisine on, and definitely, you know, Ferran Adria made it very easy (laughs) for everyone. Okay. That's about what I would have, yeah. Yeah. So recent enough that you felt like you were alive at a time that you could contextualize, not right then, but I mean, you know, in in the... you were around not long after that. You could contextual. It was all felt like you lived yeah. in this in that world. There's contextualization, yeah. but there's also just availability and and access. And yeah, to be able to go onto someone's Instagram account. Even, yes, and to find that as opposed to having to, you know, get my this woman who was helping me with research get me approved to go into the Fails Library at NYU to check out the book from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, make sure I didn't have any water or food in my bag. Like, yes. That stuff is much easier. The more current stuff, to Michael's point, there's a book that I really, it's Chuck Klosterman wrote this book, What If We're Wrong? Do you know Mm, this book? mm -mm. It was just in the last couple of years, but it's looking at the current day as though it were the past, right? And the point, one of the points he makes is that a lot of times when you're in the moment, things seem very important. A lot of times 
later on, it turns out those aren't the things that actually endure. Oh, interesting. For whatever reason. Um, and also that, and, and it's really interesting to look through the book, and I don't know, I'm not saying, I don't know how it's going to end up for the last 10 years of this book, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, he says, like, if you look back, right, how many reggae artists are there? There's tons of reggae artists, right? It's already started. At some point, people are going to look back and say, Bob Marley. Right. You know, <laughs> and right. maybe one or two other people. Right. They're going to look at a certain period of theater and say Shakespeare. Right. You know, they're going to look at a certain period of cinema and say Scorsese and Spielberg. Right. And everyone else just kind of falls away. Right. And it, it was interesting to me looking at these last 10 years. Like it's kind of, to me, this is kind of like your guys bet on the ones that are going to occupy those, the memory slots that mm -hmm. we have available to us. Memory slots. Which yes. are limited. Yes. Yes? Is that a fair yeah, statement? No, it's true. I think that'll be the part that'll be a little cringy in, you know, eight to ten years. Um, but to your point about Chuck's book, I was interested to read in Andrea Petrini's intro where he was saying there's this incredible book by the musicologist or the music writer Simon Reynolds called um, Retromania in which we always say, oh, you know, it used to be so much better. Everything that came before was better. But in food, that's not the case. Mm. while men, some of the dishes that we think are quote-unquote original today may actually take a lot more from the past, we don't actually know that because we don't hold the past of, of, as great value in food. Well, even people, I think, who are very, um, you know, super knowledgeable about food are subject to these forces that we were just talking about. You know, everyone... Everyone today says, you know, Paul Bocuse was the guy who came out of the kitchen into the dining room mm -hmm. and people knew his name and yada, yada, yada. And, but in fact, Bocuse um, apprenticed Fernand Point. to Fernand Point, right? right? Now, Fernand Point actually was the person everyone thinks Paul Bocuse is, right. really was. But he also took a lot of his dishes from Mayor Brazier. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who's in it. Well, there's an. I have a question about the year 1920, where I noted there were two f f women chefs in France. Yes. Of note, back to back, after not a whole lot of women at all in the book. I mean, from some from other places. Yeah. But, well, I mean, women. Yeah. The, two, the mayor of Lyon were the big. That was it. Yeah. But what I was going to say is, every, it's become Bocuse, right? Sure. Even to people who are very knowledgeable, and people like Michael, you know the name Pont. Mm -hmm. People know that name, mm -hmm. but Pont cooked for political figures. Pont had uh, people went out of their way to come eat in that restaurant. It was it was a destination. He was known. He wasn't just cooking out of what I call the Escoffier playbook. He was doing his own dishes. That's all stuff everyone says. Bocuse and, and popularized. All of his cooks would go on to all of them. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. create a Gerard worked there. Of, the Twagro yeah. brothers worked there, and yet that name never comes up, right? You know, so that I mean, I'm just saying, like that to me, and that to me is fascinating. Sure. Even though people do know that name, but they don't really know who he was or what he did. Right. Well, they know he wrote a a little an important book, book, of, book. You know, yeah, interesting <laughs> quips and anecdotes. Right. Yes. But even we have Paul Bocuse uh, dish from the 1970s right next to a dish from Alain Chappelle. And I would say if you were going to really nerd out, so certain chefs would tell you that Alain Chappelle is much more influential than Paul Bocuse. But I mean... There, from was, a culinary standpoint. Yes. Right. But it was extremely hard to find anything on Alain Chappelle. For, Interesting. For research purposes, short of flying to France and going You mean in terms of documentation yeah. and... No, he's really forgotten. Interesting. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I was just going to say, you know, that that's another a way of, of shifting the definition of a signature dish. You know, there's there are the dishes that you know influence other chefs that maybe. I mean, one could argue, you know, in the grand scheme of things, how many people actually ate Alain Chappelle's food? Right. You know, <laughs> there are the dishes that influence chefs chefs to move the needle and maybe, you know signify a turning point in terms of the evolution of cooking. And then there are just those dishes that are, you know, in restaurants, we call them gotta have them. You know, somebody at the table is going to have to order that, that dish. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. so two different ways of looking at it. Well, you have the, go the warm goat cheese salad from Chez Panisse in the book, right? And that was, the I mean, in the eight, I mean, in, everyone had to have a goat. Usually it was goat cheese, beets, walnuts. Right. That dish made the rounds. Wolfgang right. Puck's. Smoked salmon pizza. I mean, yeah, but it's just is just as much of a harbinger of of California well, cuisine in a different way, maybe. Mm -hmm, but I would also mm -hmm. say, and I don't know how much this was in your your all's minds in the, with the book, you know. But there was a point at which, certainly in this country, at all, what chefs were doing, and I would say this was 
probably from the 80s forward, started to trickle. Well, you mentioned TGI Friday. started mm. to trickle down to fast food. Right. Started to trickle into home kitchens. Sure. I mean, is there a bigger reason that people now have sriracha in their fridge the way they had ketchup forever than David Chang? Like, right. is there a bigger reason than that? Chrissy Teigen? Yeah, Sorry. maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I mean... Right. No, it started with Dave. Certainly. But, I mean, but that was a thing no one had even heard of. And then, I mean, I remember seeing a commercial on TV, or maybe I drove... I think it was a commercial for White Castle, and they had a sriracha burger. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow. And I connected it directly back to, like, sure. Momofuku. Sure. You know? No, that's, that's a fun thing. I actually did a story for Lucky Peach forever ago. I think it was the second issue about trickle-down fashion and the, you know, the sort of parallels between fashion as it, something goes from high fashion to the H&M or the street level. Yeah. Has that occurred, how that has occurred in, in food as well. Right. And Michelle Bra figured very heavily. Like, actually, it was some of the work that I did on that piece that made... Uh, choosing 50 signature dishes considerably easier. Mm-hmm. And, and to take it back to, to the cronut conversation, yeah. <laughs> you know, as someone who you know, occasionally does some consulting with larger food companies, that immediately entered sort of the, the way those companies ideate, mm. you know, mm. the hybrid. Mm-hmm. You got it, what's the next hybrid? The scruffin. You yeah. know, and 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 it, <laughs> it it has it has trickled down in a sense to, yeah. to the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure, sure. And and I think you know the the incubation period of these things. I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss at length. You know how this all plays out in the the digital social media era, but the incubation period is is much faster. You know, if you think of you know, I think of when I started cooking before the internet. You know, it was the publication cycle of the glossy food magazines and however long it takes to publish a book, that's how you learned about these things that were happening. Yeah, unless you were one of the rare cooks who had the money to travel, which was almost nobody, yes, you had to wait. I I learned about these things reading Art Culinaire or, you know, waiting waiting for somebody's coffee table book to come out. Um, Now it's, you know, all in the static of of social media. and, And I think that also... In talking about you know can a recent dish you know hold that that title, um, I think that's where you know sort of the relatively recent chef PR marketing mm-hmm. angle comes in because you, maybe the chef does have more power now to decide what a signature dish is going to be because they can promote the hell. Out you mean of you can almost muscle it into existence? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. funny, but at this by the same token. I feel like, you know, I, I'm really of two minds about Instagram. I know it's helpful for people. I know it helps market your restaurant. I know, mm-hmm. especially in a place like New York, there's so many places. I mean, it feels like the shelf life of a restaurant now is 18 months to two years. So people who have figured out how to play that game well, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy for them, right? Mm-hmm. But by the same token, and I've used this line before, to your point, Michael, it used to be you had to get on a plane and go somewhere, mm-hmm. not just to eat the food, to see the design, right. to, to see the menu. Like now you can spend 10 minutes on a website and you can experience a slideshow, a video, mm-hmm. how to make the dish. Like mm-hmm. You can almost imagine virtually what it was like to be there. Right. Um, uh, but putting that aside, the fact that um, you know somebody, uh, somebody can put a dish up on the pass in Copenhagen and a line cook or a sous chef in, in San Francisco right. can see it that day, the in day it was time. invented. Yeah. You know how, this is why I think people have been lamenting this sameness. That's the word that comes up a lot. There's a sameness sure. that's starting to creep in, but, but that's a, that's a huge reason for it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's crazy. I'm, but also they don't account for taste. Like they haven't had it. They don't know the texture. Right. right. Um, they don't understand the nuance or the flavor. Like I was actually just at, Noma for Friday night, they had the sort of the testing of the game dinner and we're not allowed to post until October 15th, but it's sort of like, if you only knew what you were going to be making, you know, I have to, I have to (laughs) hold this in my head for four days and I'm just, I know by next week I'm going to be eating X and Y. But part of that's, I was very happy to be reminded that the last dish in this book is a spectacularly ugly kind of like unphotographable uh, recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the grilled turbot from um, 
from Brat in London, which mm-hmm. of course is a very direct um, descendant from the turbot served at Elcano in Spain, which is also in here. But but it's just a really good dish, and it's so beautiful to eat, and the texture and the smell of the brown butter and the crispiness of the bones, like those are things Instagram could never capture. Mm-hmm. But I think it's kind of a, a really lovely fuck you to have this not cute dish. This my funny Valentine at the end. Exactly, as the last dish of this book because, you know, unfortunately looks matter now more than ever in terms of your food. You're thinking about the visibility over the, I call it eatability, Mm -hmm. not edibility, but eatability. It's funny though because if you go back, I'm just throwing this down, I'm just spitballing because it's occurring to me as we're saying it. You know, we've talked about Paul Bocuse. One of the reasons he stood out even from all these, like you mentioned Chappelle, like why did Bocuse stand out? He was a just an absolute natural showman, mm. like absolute. Mm. He created these things that were visually stunning, you know, like the potato scales on the fish right. and the and the VGE. This I think it's called Soup Elise in here, but it's it VGS. was VGS. But I it, always say VSG. It's, it's Valerie. I think it's VGE. Is it VGE? <laughs> yes, you're VGE? right. Sorry, Valerie Gistang de. Yeah. Anyway, but it's the one with the puff pastry. Exactly. It became so well known, they actually had the name of the soup uh, in script on the outside of the crock or vessel that it came in, and they still do that. Right. Um, You know, David Burke, who came of age in the 80s, um, you know, he he created this uh, famous, at the River Cafe in New York, uh, the the Chocolate Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, my God. Right? Uh And... And no, that was when I almost expected to be in here. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah. But like, David, I should have called you. Shit. <laughs> but David, uh, you know, we were speaking recently, and I said, you know, I think you're really underappreciated. I think you were really ahead of your time. Like he was, he was mm, quoting. Lollipops. He was quoting in interviews Harold McGee in the '80s. Whoa. And he got turned on to that stuff from working these, like, I guess what you'd now call consulting consultancies sure. for these, like, New Jersey flavor houses, these industrial places that were using a lot of things that are now very romantically called additives, like xanthan gum. And he was turned on to that stuff in the 80s. Wow. But he said to me uh, about the, the Brooklyn Bridge, he said, I was Instagram before Instagram, mm-hmm. you know? And I thought that was a very smart comment. But I do think there's always been a role for that. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, what was he, the ste- steak Diane years ago? You know, and flaming it in the dining room. And right. there's always been a role for the non-taste, non-edible yeah. part of food. It's right? the wow factor. It's I the mean, wow factor. Why would why why else would you leave your house? <laughs> right. The term chef artiste comes up in Mitchell's intro. Now on this show, periodically we've had it with I mean Massimo Bottura, and we've had it with. Um, Jeff Gordner recently was on, and he and I kicked it around a little, this notion of, is cooking a craft or is it an art? Now, I think more than any document I've probably ever held in my hands and spent Mm. time with, I I usually net out on the side of craft, okay? This book to me, without really making the case or getting into it, is maybe the most persuasive argument I've seen for the art side of it. I would say this book is probably 60-40 art to craft or maybe 70-30 because of the happy accidents or, mm-hmm. you know, or the street food or those things. But yes, there, there's a lot, there's a great deal of inspiration and, and elevation. And self-expression, right? I think that's a piece of it. Like yeah. people really figuring out who they are on the plate. I think by virtue of these being watercolors and not being actual, you know, literal mm. photographs, mm-hmm. I like this better than if, you know, all of a sudden from 1980 onward, you had the, like, photographs. Totally, I I think this is much more exciting to the mind. Yeah, initially when I heard that, I thought, really, really? But then it really, it's it's just so charming. I would just add to the the art craft idea, because I would agree with you. Um, But I think what, you know, it's actually surprising, um, you know, some of the selections, like, I, I had to do, like, a quick double take, like, this guy didn't invent sushi, but no, he <laughs> elevated it. He set the standard. Right, right. Um, the Robuchon pomme puree. He set the standard for what mashed potatoes could be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that really speaks to the the depth of the craft that mm-hmm. these dishes represent too. To to realize uh, this is a weird term because it doesn't really make literal sense, but a, a taste vision that that person had sure. in their head. Yeah. yeah, realized through craft. So 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 you know, there there are things here that did not exist before that dish was created. And then there are a lot of great things here that 
show, you know, the the the, the standard. Yeah. Standard bear of what. Well, or means. you look at like the Massimo dishes, right? Like the crunchy part of the lasagna, or oops, I dropped the like. Yeah. Those are like I think I I think he's like a Dadaist. Mm-hmm. I really do. <laughs> I mean, like the but you can eat the works, you know. But you know, there's a sense of you. You know, when you start getting into sense of humor, I think you're yeah. leaning toward art. Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think. All right. Can we just quickly? Uh, Christine has sure. a hard out, but I just one or two dishes. Can we talk about the chimichanga? <laughs> This that, story to that me was fun. Well, first of all, again, is things you would never think you could point to one place. Mm-hmm. And we do you do say that there's a lot of controversy or not, you yeah. know, dis- disagreement about the actual origin, but everything about it from how it happened to um uh, to the naming of it reminded me of like these origin stories you hear of candy bars. Oh, interesting. Almost. The so burrito was being made. Right. And accidentally it, ended up in a vat of oil. Because a kid came into the kitchen because, yeah. of course, there wasn't affordable health care. Just kidding. I mean, child care. Um, yeah. The kid came into the kitchen and it slid into the oil and she swore. But, right, but because she, the kid she, was there, she had to say like, mother sauce. Right. You know? Which was chimichanga. <laughs> right. Right. Was she adapted or, or modified the swear? word. Exactly. And I was reminded of those old Reese's peanut butter cup ads where two, two people would run ah, into each other and oh the gosh. peanut butter and the chalk. Right? I love it. But then the name of it and also it's kind of shaped like a candy bar. Yeah. But that's an amazing origin story. Yeah. and But also thinking about the food of that area and where that food comes from. Like that was Mexico. You know, Arizona was Mexico and you don't yes. really, or I don't, you know, having been in New York City for so long, like they're just reminders of place. Um, in researching this book that were really vivid and, you know, made me want to go there. and Right. Because there's a big chimichanga culture. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Let's give the last word. She just had her 100th birthday, Cecilia Chang, mm. founder of the Mandarin, which for people who don't know was a very, it's a seminal Chinese restaurant in San Francisco. Um, and then she had one in Beverly Hills. Tea smoked duck. Well, I mean, beyond the fact that it was a woman and an, a recent immigrant, you know, in 1961, um, and also that it drew people to the Chinatown. You know, I think culturally it's very important, but just for me it's also an immigrant story and introducing Americans to new things and, and maybe not having ingredients available or equipment available, but really making it work. Mm-hmm. And also bringing authenticity to America. I was just going to jump in at the end if you didn't yeah. say authenticity <laughs> for people who were used to like these kind of fictional really yeah, like Chinese sweet dishes. sweet or sticky or gloopy. Yes. And this is a very refined dish. Yes. And it's an authentic dish. Yes. And, and from somebody who had this absolute, we don't have time, mm-hmm. but the story of how she got from where she was born to the U.S. is just an epic in its own right. Yeah, I mean, we say Chang was set on preserving the cultural heritage of her homeland through her food, but instead of attracting Chinese customers that value traditional cuisine or Americans interested in experiencing a unique facet of what is a mosaic of Chinese food culture, the Mandarin remained nearly empty for two years. Yeah, amazing. And there she was. Christine, thank you. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Again, it is Signature Dishes That Matter... It is, by the time this show airs, it will be available from the House of Fiden. You can get it wherever you get your cookbooks. I, we should also say, having just said the word cookbooks, there's recipes in the back of this book there for are almost everything. Some of them, there's notes, not official recipes. Yeah, and some there's, of them only Michael Lascanas can make. <laughs> but they're there. <laughs> yes. And we should also say um, uh, some of them are never before published. Yes. Yes. For those of you out there who will, will be enticed by that. Yes. Now I'm thinking, Michael, I want you to do a, like dessert bar dinners where you do maybe your take on a series of these, some of these desserts. Let's do it. Great. Okay. I'll come to the Upper West Side for that. I'll be there. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> and Michael, listen, it's not your book. You came in on a holiday um, just to help us kick all this around. I, I had the idea that I thought you'd be a good add-on through, well, through Kate Greenberg at Fiden. The idea was run by Christine, who said, yes, that well, sounds perfect. I mean, perfect. he's such an incredible food scholar. Yes. And I mean, really, if you do have the chance someday, you should ask him to see his notebooks. I mean, when I was working on On the Line, the La Bernadette book, yes. and, I mean, of course, hanging out in pastry was my favorite place because Michael was there. But when I said, do you have these recipes written down or anything? He just had this whole... Okay, well, we actually are trying to find... We're trying to find a day to do a one-on-one interview Everything was by date. Everything was formatted. Everything... It was just a dream, so... Well, not only that, can we just say, for we're sitting here, uh, you know, in in our present day, Mm. somebody... 
50 years from now, doing a project, not exactly this book, but some other book will be indebted to you for having done all that. Definitely. Jeez, guys. Major resource. I'm completely serious. Living legend in the private dining room at Benno. All right. To you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. And that's our show for this week. A huge thank you to Christine Mulkey for making the time and a huge, double huge thank you to Michael Lasconis, who, as I said at the end of that conversation, just came in to be a good guy, to be a pal to me and Christine and give us some time and his uh, significant brain power and culinary knowledge as we kicked around that subject. Again, the book is Signature Dishes That Matter. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's a great book for this time of year if you're looking for a holiday gift for a food geek or a professional cook or even a just hobbyist cook in your life I think uh, it will give them something to mull over and and spend a lot of quality time with Uh, David Tattashore our engineer thank you to you to the team at Benno restaurant thank you for letting us borrow your wonderful private dining room as our home away from home this week Heritage Radio Network is a co-producer of Andrew Talks to Chefs thanks to all of you for listening and we'll see you back here next week See you.